The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to Squawk Box this Tuesday morning with Jeff Cutmore, Karen Cho, and myself, Steve Sedgwick. These are your headlines. So a historic collapse sees U.S. oil trade negatively for the first time in history. The crude prices are just going a little bit higher as the U.S. President, Mr. Trump, says he could block Saudi imports and build up state reserves to support the price. A lot of people got caught. They got caught, and uh, there are a lot of people that are not too happy because they got caught. So if you take a look at it, you'll see it's more of a financial thing than an oil situation. The energy sector reels from the losses, with American oil majors lobbying the Fed for access to aid, weighing on stocks in the US and Asia. President Trump issues an executive order suspending all immigration into the United States to fight what he calls the attack of the invisible enemy and protect American jobs. The global travel halt claims a major corporate victim as Virgin Australia enters voluntary administration after failing to secure a government bailout. And Seoul says Kim Jong-un is not seriously ill. This after reports of him ailing after major surgery. This had a significant impact on the currency, sending the one a lot weaker. Incredible journey on the oil price yesterday on the charts. Now, U.S. light crude futures turned negative for the first time ever. That's right, negative in an historic collapse as market participants cited the increased strain on storage and the collapse in demand. The May WTI contract fell more than 30%, settling at over minus $37 a barrel, meaning producers would pay traders to take oil off their hands. The demand picture has continued to deteriorate amid widespread lockdowns, while a historic output cut from OPEC and, and its allies has yet to go into effect. Longer-term contracts were also hit but remained above $20. Crude futures have turned higher in today's session, providing some level of relief at this stage. You can see uh, around some of the various contracts for June up 4.6%, 21.37 the handle, and slightly further out as you look at the July contract, $27.19. That is a bounce of 3.4% in contrast to where we're sitting on that May contract expiring later today, $1.65. And President Trump said he will consider blocking oil imports from Saudi Arabia in a bid to ease pressure on U.S. producers. The U.S. leader also suggested his government would help stockpile crude amid the shortage of storage capacity. Trump downplayed the plunge in WTI futures contracts, describing it as a financial squeeze. Much of it has to do with short sellers. Much of it has to do, if you look a month into the future, I think it's at $25 or $28 a barrel. So uh, a lot of people got caught. They got caught, and uh, there are a lot of people that are not too happy because they got caught. So if you take a look at it, you'll see it's more of a financial thing than an oil situation. But uh, because you take, I believe, in a month or so, in other words, go a little bit out, it's at 25 and $28 a barrel. So it's largely a financial squeeze. 
There was a lot of disbelief out there on financial circles about what was playing out. Negative oil. Who thought we would see that? And this is what played out on the energy stocks as a result of that volatility. Some I mean, falling more than others. Occidental Petroleum down the most, 7.6%. And uh, swing south of 4% plus percent for the likes of Exxon and Chevron. So it was a day in the red for the major oil companies. Don't forget we've seen a huge reversal of about 50-odd percent so far over the course of the last 52 weeks and some of those big U.S. energy stocks anyway, if you look at the sector performance. What we've got uh, across over the course of the individual Asian oil companies, we've got a, a drop to reflecting that volatility. Some a little more contained than others, likes of Woodside and PetroChina only down uh, slightly versus losses elsewhere. What we've got uh, across on Sinopec Group, 2.8% drop. And meantime, uh, let's push on and take a look elsewhere and uh, the fallout from this move that we were seeing on the energy markets. A U.S. Energy Trade Association is reportedly calling on the Federal Reserve to loosen the terms of its lending program. According to Reuters, the Independent Petroleum Association of America has written to the central bank asking for a rule change that would allow producers to access the $600 billion lending facility. The letter said the sector needs a, quote, bridge to survive the economic impact from the pandemic. Dave Ernsberger, Global Head of Pricing and Market Insight at S&P Global Platts joins us. And of course, Stephen Jeff on the line. Let me ask you first up, Dave, uh, what the reaction was at S&P because many oil traders there, many market watchers also chasing this oil price. And we've seen rates go negative, but not oil before. So what was the reaction? What was the feeling around your office yesterday when this took place? Yeah, well, I would say that our reaction, like everybody else's reaction, began with surprise, evolved into disbelief, and then uh, quickly mutated into shock because uh, there wasn't much of a... I suppose we could all see that there would be a chase for lower values coming in the U.S., especially ahead of a contract expiry like we saw yesterday. But the idea that crude prices could go negative, while we'd all been talking about it for a couple of weeks, nobody thought it would really happen. So the shock settled in quickly. And then watching those numbers go down minus 30s, well, I, I think we're in a, in a new world right now. We're all trying to understand what this means. Dave, I can talk to you till we're blue in the teeth about the leverage plays, about the sub collars, about the synthetic uh, short that was created until you actually run into your short put that ran into the money. We can talk about the, uh, the retail investors taking a bath on this one, but that's all looking backward. Is this going to happen to the June contract? That's what people want to know looking forward. Yeah, that's correct. So as the smoke clears this morning, that is the number one question in the market today. You know, we can all, as you say, we can all mull over the technical reasons why on expiry. We, we hit these numbers yesterday. But anybody who thinks that the technicals were behind negative pricing yesterday is going to completely miss the point that storage is just as full for June, if not fuller than it was for May. Um, already Cushing is 70 or 80 percent full, and that technically means it's closed for business. So we could easily see this play into the June contract pretty soon. Yeah, I've got so many questions. And like you, we've been chatting to everybody most of the evening and just everyone's aghast and amazed. But but has Saudi won is my other question as well, because there is a question about whether this was by design or by default or what have you. But when the dust settles in this one and we've asked our questions about the June contract and we're looking forward a bit more, has Saudi won? Yeah, so Saudi Arabia and Russia have both won here, but it's a very pyrrhic victory because while they long had U.S. shell production in their sites, and these numbers mean shell producers are absolutely unable to produce, and there's a meeting at the Texas Railroad Commission today, 
to talk about these issues, they need to look over their shoulder because Brent is not far behind. Other crew benchmarks are not far behind, and the world is running out of storage. So what we saw in, in Oklahoma yesterday, not unlike the virus in Wuhan, we can see the oil market virus spread to the rest of the world very quickly here. Our estimates are that total inventory in the world could be exceeded by the end of May, beginning of June. So they better watch out what's happening here because it, 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 the celebration should be short and brief. i got to think about what this means for next month. Dave, very quick follow-up. I know Jeff's desperate to get in as well. The, the world can't run out of storage because they have this stuff in the ground, and that's always been my point. So will the supply just be turned off? Because, of course, everyone looks at the demand curve, but you and I and others in the industry look at the supply curve as well. So you can't run out of storage if you leave it in the ground. Will they leave it in the ground? I, I mean, I, I think that the, this is the curse of oil. You have to keep pumping to keep making that money. Uh, and this is why I say Russia, Saudi Arabia, for that matter, the rest of OPEC has to look very carefully because, yes, you can leave it in the ground, but that's akin to shutting your shop and no longer selling your goods. I mean, what does that mean for the economies of Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, uh, Qatar, for that matter, Russia? So, you know, this is a global problem. You can leave it in the ground, but then what do you do with your cash flow? And, and they don't have the infinite uh, reserves, of course, as we all know, of cash, I mean. Dave, I just wanted to go back to the, the structural reasons for the price being where it is or where it went to here. And I was listening to Jeff Curry uh, from Goldman Sachs uh, doing an interview with uh, one of our colleagues in the United States. Obviously, he's the head of commodities research over at Goldman. And he had a wonderful description for this. He described it like congestion on the highway. This is landlocked pipelines in Oklahoma and elsewhere in the United States that are effectively full at this point. And you're almost paying to have this oil taken away to empty these pipelines. That made a whole lot of sense to me because then I looked at Brent, which, as we know, is a floating crude. Effectively, it can go anywhere in the world on tankers. And it, it seemed to me that yeah. the Brent quote, the Brent price now reflects perhaps for the rest of the world, a more accurate understanding of what oil is actually worth. Am I heading in the right direction on this. And if that is the case, then that has different consequences for the way we need to think about where gasoline prices are going and what refining margins are going to look like. Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head there. I mean, I was thinking about this this morning. Actually, when we tell, when I tell the story of what happened yesterday, it made it more like the Benny Hill show than gridlock on a highway. But the point there about gridlock around Cushing, Oklahoma, and the pipelines to take the crude oil to the export markets is absolutely bang on from Curry there. Um, we've been arguing for a long time that Brent is more representative of the world oil price than WTI. We're not the only ones on that. Your point that Brent is on the water and WTI, at least in Cushing, is landlocked is the essential point there. Ultimately, what we saw yesterday, when all this Thurman drawing is done here, is that the value of U.S. crude locked into the middle of the United States is negative value right now. But that still doesn't mean that the value of crude for the rest of us is going to be negative. We're not going to see free gasoline at our petrol pumps anytime soon. When I looked at uh, XOP, the ETF that represents a lot of those uh, oil businesses then, the surprising thing is even as the WTI price fell, we saw XOP rising. One, because I think a lot in the market thought that, hey, the price can't get any lower, so we must be forming a base here. And the second one was that this ultimately leads to a round of consolidation among many of these oil businesses, and then we see a price turn. Is that, again, a fair reflection of what's going on here, or is it too early 
to anticipate there is an opportunity to start buying into some of these oil businesses on the hope of some corporate activity? Well, there's an eight-week danger zone here between today uh, and sometime in June, where between now and then, anybody who thinks that oil is sound to floor is playing with fire and trying to catch the famous falling knife, because it's almost impossible to call. But once the impact of the OPEC cuts come in, as modest as they are compared to how demand has been destroyed, once we start to see that feeding into the market, um, it's not unreasonable to think that we're not going to see these kinds of levels again. Uh, so there's, a, there's, a, there's an eight-week window here, and those kinds of economics might start to play out. But anybody taking a position today is playing with fire. What's the role of potential protectionism in this market? Because President Trump has said he will take a look at a proposal to block uh, Saudi Arabian oil shipments. That's been put forward by a, a couple of uh, different uh, as, uh, experts in the industry, also uh, politicians. Do you think that is likely? And if so, what impact will it have given what we've seen with the, the impact of tariffs on the aluminium and steel markets in the past? Yeah, I, I think I think interventionalism is going to be too tempting to resist at this point, both of the administration at a federal level, uh, at the state level with some of the authorities there. I mentioned Texas Railroad Commission meets today, and there's talk that they're going to um, walk through a 20% cut in Texas production there, which is, of course, the home of the Permian Basin production. Uh, who knows what will happen there, but I think the temptation is just going to be simply too strong. And then on the bigger picture, you know, we know that Trump likes to reach into the tariff bag and start throwing tariffs around to make a point, if only to distract attention from what happened in the U.S. yesterday. So we expect very much that there could be talk of tariffs and maybe even very real threat of tariffs against some of the major oil producers not in the not-too-distant future here. Dave, thank you very much for joining us this morning on what is a fairly historic day. Dave Ernsberger, Global Head of Pricing and Market Insight, S&P Global Platts. I want to take you to what we're seeing elsewhere on markets, because with that turmoil taking place in the oil market, the ramifications could be there for other parts of uh, the financial markets. But we are in the red, not showing huge strains at this point for the Asian markets. They fall about 2% for Australia across in China, a slide of 1.3. A little bit more coming off both the Hong Kong and Japanese stock markets, a drop of about 2 percent but let's just take a look at that handover from Wall Street, where we also saw a reversal there, breaking a two-day winning streak as investors were very much eyeing that uh, strain they were seeing in the oil markets. 2.4% drop for the likes of the Dow Boeing, having the most negative impact on that market. But now we're roughly about 20% off those 52-week highs. So the reversal, bear market territory is what we're looking at again. 1.8% down roughly for the S&P 500. The stock having a fairly big impact there. Apple, that was the most negative one for the Nasdaq. Uh, we had a drop of about 89 points or 1%. Well, the full impact of the coronavirus outbreak is not reflected in the stock market. That is the view of billionaire investor and Oak Tree Capital co-chairman Howard Marks, who told CNBC the situation is far worse than the markets are letting on. We're only down 15% from the all-time high uh, of uh, February 19th. And it seems to me that the world is more than 15% screwed up. Uh, so, uh, you know, I do think, I do think that, that uh, the world is ahead of itself. You can head to our website for more views from the highly followed billionaire investor. And you can hear why he says people are overestimating how much different it will be in five years' time. President Trump says he will temporarily suspend immigration into the United States. The U.S. leader used Twitter to announce he will sign the executive order, quote, in light of the attack from the invisible enemy to protect American jobs. 
Nearly 22 million U.S. citizens have claimed unemployment in the weeks since the economy was shut down. White House officials have offered few details, but a senior member of the administration told NBC News that the move had been under consideration for a while, adding that the order could be signed as early as this week. Coming up on the show, we get the corporate view on those historic oil moves with the CEO of petrochemical storage firm Vopac. And for the latest headlines and major market moves in audio, please check out our podcast, that Squawk Box, on the main podcast platforms. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. As we've started out the show talking about the world awash with oil-seeking storage, uh, we've got a storage company reporting now, Vopac, its Q1 numbers just crossing, and uh, the company has uh, posted its numbers on EBITDA, 200 million euros for the first quarter versus 215 million euros, uh, same time a year ago, pre-divestments. The company's occupancy rate for subsidiaries uh, of 84% reflected high levels of planned inspection and maintenance of out-of-service capacity. The company uh, also saying uh, that uh, its EBIT has crossed 127 million for the first quarter. That is versus 137 million pre-divestments same time a year ago. Uh, the company is reiterating its aim to grow EBITDA over time with new contributions from growth projects. And I want to get into the conversation because clearly a lot happening on oil markets at this stage. Ilka Hoekstra is the CEO of Vopac. Ilka, let me ask you about what you're seeing in terms of demand for storage. You reported back in mid-May to some investors that there have been an increase in the number of inquiries in the storage of crude oil and oil products in your global network. I'm sure that those calls must have become more aggressive in terms of do you have any storage at this point? Well, good morning, everyone. It's a good question. Indeed, we, we witnessed in the first quarter, uh, and particularly in mid-March, an unprecedented drop in the price of oil. I think uh, the, the two events that happened, as, as most people know, has been that demand was severely affected by the COVID-19 spread, particularly for transport fuels, uh, for cars and planes, so gasoline and jet fuel. And supply was further affected by the price war that emerged between the suppliers. But what we've seen recently is that this has exacerbated because demand has dropped about 30% of what it normally is. And therefore, we've seen, indeed, the amount of inquiries globally to uh, to increase. That uh, that happened at the end of March. So I would expect that in the months following, particularly the second quarter, we'll see occupancy rates at storage terminals go up significantly. What does that mean in terms of pricing? Because as we see storage facilities brimming with oil, there have been reports that tanker storage has gone up, but those prices escalating very rapidly. Have you increased your prices because of the increased demand? Well, it depends very much on your starting point. I think I think Volpac is slightly differently positioned because our, our strategy has, has worked and we have a strong portfolio of terminals across different liquidities and different products. I think 30% of our earnings are oil-related and 60% is gas and chemicals and industrial-related. 
And second of all, we already had a high occupancy whereby most contracts that we had with customers was there to supply more structural needs in nature. So I would say that Stolpark is influenced by the price of oil, but we're not dependent of it. And therefore, this market structure is, is seen as sort of a good support of our, of our earnings. So the companies that, that had, had, a, had a profile which had low occupancy obviously could benefit better from the situation. Okay, sorry to interrupt you just there. Look, we're looking at the oil complex, of course, and seeing can it happen here? Can it happen on Brent? And Jeff's already been talking about that with our, our guests previously. What I want to ask you is, can it happen in other products as well? You, you have uh, storage for LNG, liquid chemicals, gases, biofuels, vegetable oils. Because demand has dropped across the board for a whole host of these products, could what we're seeing in the oil market happen in other products? Well, I would expect that because I think uh, the situation at this moment in, in the United States is rather unique. I think, uh, I think logistically and the availability of tankage was such that, uh, that with the settlement of the contracts in May, I think basically trades capitulated in the face of limited access of storage. I think we haven't seen that happening to Brent. I think, uh, I think that's still, we still trade at $25 yesterday. And, and I see that the future contracts for June are again priced at $20, meaning if the contracts or the markets actually anticipate the supply will adjust. So I think, I think what will happen is that uh, producers need to respond probably quickly to this happening, and I think that will happen. So I, I think uh, that, that we see this happening more often across the globe, I think, is unlikely. But again, this is such an unusual situation. I, I think I've said it before about multiple things in the last quarter. Yelker, I think um, looking at your earnings, perhaps the surprise this morning is that people will see that quarter on quarter, year on year, um, the earnings were actually lower than you delivered in this quarter last year. And they might be asking, given that there does seem to be this strong demand for oil and chemical storage at the moment, and you must be able to push up short-term uh, prices and agreements. Why earnings aren't stronger at this stage? That's a good question. There that, are two, two reasons that's easily explained. First of all, that we had a major divestment at the end of last year, which, uh, which accounted for 70 million euros EBITDA. So therefore, that's, uh, that's uh, a difference year on year end. We've said in our outlook statement and our a forward-looking statement that the new capacity that we're constructing today and will be delivered will, uh, over time, fill that gap. And second of all, I think the contango only started mid-March. So I think uh, people are now uh, getting to, uh, to grips with that reality. So I expect that, uh, that you see occupancy going up, particularly in the second quarter. And can I ask you about... Um uh, tankers, because clearly you operate um, a, a lot of uh, hubs on land and you have other uh, storage capacity. But but when your business came together, it was also in the tanker market effectively as well. Do you see a lot of this spare capacity finding its way on ships that just get anchored uh, in the Straits of Singapore again? Well, I think that's that's happening today. I, th I think the easiest way to look at that is to look at the, uh, the charter parties that are being being signed for oil tankers today. And I think if you look at the VLCC tariffs, I think it's the order of magnitude of eight times the price uh, of a while ago. So you see clearly that demand for tankers has gone up. Uh, how how exactly that uh, that supply and demand uh, is uh, is played out, I, I wouldn't know in in great detail. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com.
or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.